turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, where we'll be this morning. And if I, if I say Peter when referencing the author many times today instead of Paul, it's a mistake. I haven't been in Colossians for a few months now, but we'll pick up where we last left off in our study in Colossians on Sundays in Colossians chapter 3, starting in verse 15. I would appreciate your, your prayers for me, your prayers for the preaching and the hearing of the word. This is a text that's very straightforward and yet I, I think also difficult to understand in some ways and difficult to apply. Um, in one sense, I think it's difficult to make application because this is something our church already does very well. Um, we are, I think, in many ways a body of peace. We haven't always been, but I think we are. Um, we, we are a body that is unified. We're a body that sings Together, um, as we heard, a body that the word dwells in us richly. So these aren't going to be um, corrections so much as stirring up by way of reminder to do these things more and more um, this morning. But just to remind you of where we've been as you turn there in Colossians chapter 3, over the last few sermons um, from that chapter, we've seen Paul's description of the Christian life. And really the dynamic has been putting off and putting on, putting off what is not Christ-like as those who now have a new identity and a new nature in Christ and putting on what is now true of them in Christ, what is true of Christ. Um, putting off sin in our lives, in our minds, and our hearts, all the things that are earthly and sinful, what marked us as those who were perishing apart from Christ and putting on what is now true of Christ and his character in our heart and our mind and our will. This is the active process of sanctification that we've seen in we saw in verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 our new identities in Christ, that we have been raised with Christ, with the command from Paul in all things to seek Christ above, to set our minds on Christ, his death, his resurrection, his return, all those things that define us and determine how we then live while we wait for his glorious appearing. In verses 5 through 9 of the chapter, we see the active war against sin and earthliness that's still in our flesh, our bodies, in which we put to death that which to we have died in the death of Christ. In verses 10 through 14, you have the positives, the things that you put on as people in Christ, attributes of Christ himself in compassion and kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, ultimately love for one another, as Christ is and has been and, and does for us. And now, as we get to verse 15 of chapter 3, we continue with this same theme of putting on Christ in our lives, but I think with a little different application. Verses 10 through 14 were what you could call the one another's. They're what we put on as, as individuals to become more Christ-like in the way that we treat one another. And starting in verse 15, we could call these things that we put on the togethers. These are things that we put on that we do as a congregation, a church, a body, to be more like Jesus as the body of Christ. The first command that we have there at the beginning of our text today that we'll read, the theme of this passage, I think, is the peace of Christ. Paul commands us as a church, as a body, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Let peace control your hearts. Let it literally, as the word says, be an umpire. Let it make the decisions for you. Let it arbitrate all the matters of your heart. The heart there not just being the center of your chest, but the source of your life. Um, so I'm going to read through just the first, rather, I'm going to read from verses 6 through the end of verse, um, 
Actually, we'll start at verse 1, and we'll read through verse 17 for context, and then I'll pray and ask the Lord to help us. Starting in chapter 3, Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one is a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, I thank you for this time that we have together. Lord, I pray for your grace for the congregation, Lord, that you would open our eyes collectively to um, understand your word, to see what is true about Christ here in this passage, to see how we should respond in light of what is true about Christ. Lord, I pray for your mercy on me that I would not go beyond what is written. Lord, that you would keep me tethered to the truth put here, inspired by your Holy Spirit. Lord, I, I plead these things because of Christ, who is our covering, our, our righteousness, who is our security of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. So we come here to verse 15, and I think you see the possession and the priority of peace in the body of Christ. The, the identifying mark of Christ's body The chief attribute or testimony of the visible church to the world is peace. Individually, this is inner calmness of mind. This is tranquility, rest from the anxieties and fears of earthly life in the eternal security of Christ. And this is expressed by hearts that are at peace with God through Christ corporately, as as Paul's emphasis is, is here, in unity of mind of heart, of affections, of love for and loyalty to one another that that can only come from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peace in the heart can only come from having peace with God and knowing that you are secure in Him, trusting Him as He sovereignly works all things for your good. It is the very peace of Christ. It's the peace and harmony that He enjoys with the Father. This is something that we become partakers of as we become unified with Christ by faith. It is the peace that He has. It's the peace that he gives. It's the peace that he is for his people. He himself is our peace, Ephesians says. For all the the messaging that is out there in the world, in the visible church, about the desire for peace, 
um, peace in the Middle East, peace over political division in our country, false prophets in the visible church crying peace, peace where there is no peace, promising peace from other or extra biblical sources, from racial reconciliation, from inner peace with yourself. For all of that, peace is not actually something that is valued by anyone other than Christ or anyone other than those who are in Christ. It's actually not possible for those outside of Christ. We crave conflict in our flesh, right? Apart from Christ, we will never be at peace because we hate peace. There's a reason why reality TV exists, right? It's not because we love peace in our flesh. There's a reason why WWE and MMA and and all those things are so watched and so tracked. There's a reason why kids gather around fights on a playground. It's because we crave conflict in our flesh. It amuses us. It, it entertains us. It, it excites our, our sinful passions at war within us, which cause quarreling and fighting, as James 3 says. Our, our sinful flesh loves to be in conflict with other image bearers of God because ultimately our sinful flesh loves to be in conflict with God. We hate those who bear his image. We, we want to strike at our creator, but we can't reach him. And so we, we want to be in conflict with those around us. And that's why any form of, of reconciliation, any form of peace that does not begin with the person's conflict with God is absolutely pointless. Your greatest enemy in life, apart from Christ, is God as a sinner. He is your enemy. And, and if he is against you and you are against him, if God is against you, every other threat, every other conflict is irrelevant. Right? If, you're, if you're hearing me as an unbeliever today, really nothing else applies to you when it comes to the peace of Christ until you have peace with God through Christ. If he is against you, you are dead. You're, you're doomed. You're ready to be destroyed forever, tormented eternally in hell in the face of God's wrath and judgment on your sin. You should forgive others. You should seek peace with people that you've wronged, but not before you cry out to God for peace through Christ. Because you will never have peace without Christ. There is no peace. There is no rest, God says, for the wicked. Your sins demand your death at his hands. Apart from him, you're standing before the coming storm of God's wrath without any shelter, without any hope of peace. And God will not be denied his vengeance on every sinner. God is a a loving God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquities, faithful to every generation of his people, but he will by no means clear the guilty. We have this as a promise. God always gets his man. And God will get you unless you are reconciled to him through Christ. But once you are at peace with God, this is the, the peace Paul is talking about, once you are hidden in God with Christ, Once Christ's righteousness is yours and all of his promises for you are yes and amen in Christ, there is no conflict in the world. There's no conflict in you that the peace of Christ does not surpass. He himself is your peace. He is your forgiveness. The peace of Christ means you have peace inwardly. Your conscience no longer accuses you for the wrongs that you've done. Because God no longer holds those things against you in his law. And if God has cleared you, every other accusation is irrelevant. You're forgiven. You have peace about the future. You have peace about eternity. You have peace with your maker and your savior. And secondly, you have peace with his people. And this is the peace of Christ corporately that Paul is talking about. You are secure and sheltered and accepted by God. It's not peace that comes from a good savings account. It's not peace that comes from having a nice home or a good job. It's peace that comes from having Christ. And when all those other things are gone, Christ is your peace still. 
This peace of Christ, Paul tells us, is already the possession or the privilege of Christ's people. Paul Paul presupposes that here. He doesn't say find peace, go get peace, Colossians. He says let that peace that is in your heart through Christ rule. Let it dominate. And it's also the, the constant priority as much as it is the possession of the people of God. To preserve this peace in the body. And this is not a theme, this peace of Christ. This is not an attribute of Christ that's proprietary to Colossians. Actually, this, this word peace occurs in every word of the New Testament except for, or every book of the New Testament except for two books, 1 John and Acts. And I would say the, the only reason it doesn't appear in 1 John and Acts is because they use synonyms. This is a constant theme of the New Testament. The word is almost always used to describe the gospel or the effects of the gospel. Our Lord is known as the Prince of Peace. We have that from Isaiah 9. In Hebrews 7, Jesus is the King of Peace, the King of Salem, the greater Melchizedek. This King of Peace brings with him a gospel of peace, as Ephesians 6 says. Jesus said in Matthew 10 that he did not come to bring peace to the earth, but a sort of division, a distinction between those who are his and those who disobey the truth. But he also said that he came to establish peace, to bring reconciliation specifically to his redeemed people. As the angels announce in Luke 2, they announce glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And to these people of God's good pleasure, those chosen by the mercy of the Father, Jesus brought peace with God by faith in his work upon the cross. This reconciliation with God through the death of Jesus Christ not only establishes peace vertically, but horizontally. You, You cannot have peace horizontally until you have peace with God Vertically, But as he says in, in Ephesians 2, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one, that is, Gentile and Jew, pagan and religious, every enemy that's gathered under the cross of Christ and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And Christ came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the the peace of the people of Christ, the peace of Christ in the church is something that Christ accomplished. To which all are called as Christians in one body, he says in Colossians 3. And it's something that Christ is intensely concerned with preserving in his people by his Holy Spirit. We have him promised that much in John 14, where he says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. Peace in the body of Christ in the sense of unity is also the subject of Jesus' high priestly prayer for his people in John 17. His last prayer for his church, where he says in verse 11, Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. First John describes that, that unity this way, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, So that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed our fellowship as Christians is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So the reconciled fellowship of believers is also fellowship with the triune Godhead. 
by the Spirit. So it cannot, our fellowship cannot and must not by its very nature be marked by division and conflict. God is not divided within himself. And Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that Christ is not divided, neither then should be his body. And finally, as Paul has already triumphantly argued in Colossians 1, the peace of the body of Christ, both with God and, and with each other, is an accomplishment that proclaims Christ's preeminence over all the universe. We saw this in Colossians chapter 1, and in verse 18, he says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. It's a summary of the peace of Christ in the New Testament. So the peace of Christ is then his title. The peace of Christ is Christ's nature. It's his message, it's his prayer, it's his work, it's his fellowship, it's his image, it's his accomplishment, it's his inheritance, it's his promise, and it's his glory. Do you think this is something that might matter to Christ? Just a little bit. And because conflict with others is ultimately conflict with God, the Christian who is ruled by this peace of Christ should feel the interruption of his enjoyment of the peace of God. When he is in conflict with other image bearers, especially other believers. Right? It's, it's not as if, as a Christian, you can do anything to undo the objective reconciliation with God that Christ has accomplished for you. But a Christian husband that, that snaps harshly at his wife, or the Christian child who disobeys her parents, the, the Christian brother who settles into resentment of his fellow brothers and sisters in the body, should feel the obstacle that he's placed between his enjoyment of inner peace with God and loving harmony with God in Christ. And the peace of God is your inward authority, your inward priority should compel you to reconcile with the person that you've wronged or that has wronged you. Even if you must forgive without repayment or, or bear with someone without resolution of the thing that bothers you because you long to be ruled by the peace of Christ from the very center of your being. So Paul's Paul's charges for us who have the mind of Christ and and minds that are set on Christ to seek what is most important to Christ. And that is his peace, peace in the body, unity of his people, to let it rule in our hearts and determine all that we do or say in the body, all our thoughts and our emotions. From our hearts, Proverbs says, flows the springs of life. And and from the hearts that are ruled by peace flow springs of peace and order and Christ-likeness in all areas of life. You see that progression in Colossians chapter 3. Hearts that are ruled by peace produce a church body at peace in verses 15 through 17, which has families in it that are at peace at home in verses 18 through 21, with workers and employers, slaves and masters who go out from the home and are at peace in the workplace. You see that through the beginning of chapter 4. And all of this orderly living, all of this peaceful living according to the rule of the peace of Christ enables the people of God to proclaim the message of peace with God through Christ to all the world. That's why Paul ends that section with a prayer that a door for the word may be opened, that he may proclaim it clearly. 
We are to live peaceably with all men, Romans 12 says, so far as it depends on us. And that starts in the hearts of a people that is ruled by peace together. This is all fruit. This is all a harvest of righteousness, as James 3.18 says. Sown in peace by those who make peace. And this peace, Paul says in Philippians 4, is, is that which surpasses all earthly understanding. And it guards our hearts and our minds as Christians. It preserves us from conflict, from sins and anxieties and through sufferings. But it likewise must be guarded. The peace of Christ must be maintained and sown in the heart by the people of God with the word of God. Now, I think that's why through the rest of this passage, Paul further equips us with the ways in which we make this priority a reality in the body. How we pursue and promote and preserve the peace of Christ for the glory of Christ. And in verse 16a, Paul gives us the means of sowing peace, of sowing the peace of Christ, which is the richly indwelling word of Christ. Paul secondly gives us the method by which we apply this means. In verse 16b, the teaching and admonishing, mutual Christian counsel. Paul also gives us thirdly the manner in which we sow peace through the whole passage, being thankful in all things to God, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness. And fourthly, he gives us the motive for which we strive for peace. In verse 17, in word and deed, doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Also that Christ may be magnified in the gospel witness of a church at peace with God and with man through Jesus Christ. So how do we foster and preserve, promote this kind of peace among the body? How does it come to rule in our hearts? Paul tells us in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. This is a, a, a parallel statement here. It's a synonymous command, right? You, you have the command, let the peace Rule your hearts, the peace of Christ, and let the word of Christ dwell. This is the means of sowing peace in our hearts and in the church. To to be indwelled by God's word. And the word there doesn't just mean to convey knowing the word or, or memorizing the word. Right? The fullness of God's deity dwelled in Christ bodily. Do you think Christ had part of God's deity? Do you think he had just a, a portion of, of God's fullness? He had all of it. It was synonymous with his person. The word is is meant to make its home in our lives, in our minds, our souls. You can read through the Bible once a year and not let it dwell in you. The word dwell is deeper than that. It's ingrained in the center of our being. It's it's really second nature, really first nature for the Christian. The word has to dominate the whole place. It commands our affections. It's the distinctive characteristic of our heart. Christians should be living epistles of the word of Christ, as Steve Lawson says. We should be walking Bibles. Really, to to be a Christian, to be an obedient Christian, is to have your heart so filled with God's word that it it pumps scripture through your veins until your very blood is bibline, as as Charles Spurgeon said about John Bunyan. If if you've read anything about Bunyan, Bunyan basically spoke in Bible, not in English. The very fact that he spoke English is because he read the King James Bible. But his first language was scripture. He thought in Bible. When he used analogies, they were Bible stories. When he spoke of history, he talked of Acts or the Old Testament. He knew more biblical accounts than current events. He knew more about David's wars than England's wars. When he needed knowledge or wisdom to deal with his pressing needs, he didn't go to something modern. He didn't go to something new. He went to something eternal, something that transcended his earthly troubles. And this is a, 
maybe one of the greatest points of responsibility here for us in this text, Christian, today, because we have perhaps greater access to God's word as believers today than all of the periods of human history before us combined. We have the completed canon. We have the internet, which aside from all the other uses it can be used for is a great way to have access to scripture. And I think that that great privilege bears with it the greatest responsibility to be filled with the word. And maybe one of the greatest failures of the modern church. Because as much as we have the greatest access to God's word in history, God's word has perhaps the least access to the people of God in history. We're functionally illiterate when it comes to the scriptures. Why is there so much division in the visible church? Why is there so much conflict It's not because God's word is not readily available, but rather because it's so widely neglected. As Spurgeon said in his day, all the errors of this modern day come from a non-reading of the Bible, a non-dwelling of the Bible. We don't value the word, I think, as much as we should. We don't see the privilege that it is. We don't see its glories. We don't delight in the word, perhaps because we aren't delighting in the God of the word. Some of this is by design. It's an absurd reality today that many churches view too much scripture, too much doctrine as something that leads to conflict rather than leads us out of it. Doctrine is intentionally sacrificed for the sake of unity, for the sake of maintaining peace in the body, as if the word of Christ must be given up in order to maintain the peace of Christ. Is Christ divided? You know, if you look at this passage, many churches want to skip right past the teaching and admonishing in Colossians 3 and get right to the singing. The music is what they rely on to unite the church. We we have multiple events going on in our community all the time. Church united. And what's a feature of those gatherings is never the word. It's, It's singing. But any peace or unity, any love that does not flow from the word of Christ is not a peace that is worth having. Singing cannot be a source of unity in the church. It's an expression of the peace that comes to rest on the church because the word dwells there. The word of God is the only true source of unity for a body of believers. Jesus said as much in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He he prays that we may be one. And then he says a few verses later to the father, I have given them your word. Sanctify them. That is set them apart as holy together in your truth. Your word is truth. We have a responsibility, every single one of us as Christians, as we'll see, because we have an application of the word that is for every believer. Every believer is a teacher and admonisher, not just the pastors, not just the apostles. We can't minister with what we don't have in us. This is a responsibility. And I hear all the time, I was talking with my my wife about this this morning, you hear often from Christians, well, I'm not a reader, right? So it's hard for you. I'm not a reader. Are, Are you an eater? So if you have your wisdom teeth out and it's hard for you to eat, do you just go without for a couple weeks? Or do you make it work because you need it? It's your necessity. It's what you live by. And man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is basic for us as Christians. Paul shows us in Ephesians in a very similar passage to our text that being filled with the word is like being filled with the one spirit of Christ. In Ephesians 5, verse 18, he says, And do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the spirit, 
addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The language in the first part of that passage is almost identical to our text in Colossians. Except one says, be filled or indwelled with the word. One says, be filled with the spirit. But the results are the same. In one sense, to be spirit-filled and to be scripture-filled are the same thing. The results are the same. The, The presence and leading of the Holy Spirit in a church is not a mystical experience. It's an objective reality that happens when the body is under the steady control of the truth of God's word. As John MacArthur writes, the word of God in the mind and in the heart is the handle by which the Spirit turns the will. If you want to be led by the Spirit in your life, you will be guided, filled with the word. To be led by the Spirit is to be mastered by the word. We have no need for glory clouds, no need for visions, no need for dreams or experiences. We don't need to invite the Spirit to come 25 times in a chorus Open the doors for him in the back so he can come. Turn on the fog machine so he has some medium to swim through. I don't know what they do. The thing is, if you want the spirit in your body, open the Bible. He's there. He's always there. To be spirit-filled as a Christian is to be richly indwelled by the word that the spirit inspired. The most spiritual Christians, if you will, are the ones who are saturated with the scriptures. Does the word dwell richly in you? Is it at home in your heart? Does it come out of your mouth in your daily life? Does it fill your thoughts? Does it filter your emotional responses? Does it guide your affections? If not, is it any wonder why you feel so little peace? Even as a Christian, is it any wonder why you feel so little peace? So so much distance from God. As if God is not hearing you. God is not speaking to you. Is it any wonder why you're so anxious about so many things? Why you're in conflict with those around you? Why you have arguments with your spouse, with your children, with your coworkers, with your neighbors? Why you have so much inner turmoil and fear and anxiety? That happens as a Christian simply from the neglect of God's ordinary means of grace and the word. Jesus left his peace with us in John 17 by leaving us his word and then by giving us his spirit to open his word to us. When you are indwelled by the word, Christ is present with you in every situation. His authority determines your decisions. His promises influence the outcomes that you hope for. His peace calms your fears. Christ is always present and active as the Holy Spirit is where his word is. His presence gives you peace. His warnings keep you from the things that take away the peace of Christ. But the kind of indwelling Paul is talking about is primarily a corporate indwelling. Right? A body is at peace when the word is richly in its people. The body of Christ is at peace by default when the word of God is the controlling influence of all that is said or done. It, it destroys selfishness in the body. It, it compels love and and holiness. It causes the people of God in humility to look not only to their own interests, but to the interests of those around them. And you know the Word of God has truly indwelled you richly as a Christian when you seek it not only for your own benefit, but for the benefit of one another. When the Word of Christ comes out of you for the spiritual benefit of your fellow Christian, that's when the Word has so saturated you, so enriched your soul that it overflows in love for one another. 
I'm sure you've heard it said that you don't truly know something until you can teach it to others. That's often how you come to know it best. It's the same with the word of Christ, the gospel, really. You become so full of the grace and knowledge of Christ in your own soul that you share out of the abundance of the gospel that is in your life with its applications and implications for all of life. You can't overflow with what is not in you. But if the word is in you richly, it will overflow the bounds of your own soul and into the lives of the people around you. You see this as a husband when you are so filled with the joy and and so aware of Christ's glory in the word that you want to wash your wife in it. When as a parent you are so filled with the wisdom of Christ in the word that you desire to pass it on to your children. When as a church member you're so filled with the peace of the Lord that comes from peace with God in Christ from the word that you address one another, as Paul says, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. When as a Christian you are so filled with Christ's compassion for sinners in the word that you are compelled to speak of it to those perishing in their own sin. When it's not just for your own soul, but it's it's stored up in your heart and ready on your lips for the eternal good of the saints and the lost. That's how you know that the word has truly saturated your own heart and mind. When it turns your attention off of yourself and onto others, to those around you, you begin to use the word for the profit of others. That's the method of making peace in the body that we see um, fourthly here. Paul gives us three ways that word is applied, essentially, in teaching, admonishing, and and singing. And and if you'll notice, the first two, teaching and admonishing in all wisdom, that goes back to Paul's own description of his ministry in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. He says there in verse 28, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So there's, there's both a negative and a positive aspect to this, this service that the minister renders to the saints. He, he teaches everyone under his charge, and he warns or he admonishes in all wisdom. Admonishing from the word nutheteo, where we get counseling or biblical counseling from, it concerns warning someone concerning their behavior, the attitudes of their heart. He warns the members of God's household in a way that would call them to repentance from their sin, from their wrong belief. Secondly, the minister serves the saints by teaching them in all wisdom. Teaching here refers to the faith once delivered for all the saints, the doctrines of Christ. It's the positive teaching so that the saints would be filled with the word, that the word would fill the saints with all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that they may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. Our worship of God as Christians, our our lives of holiness, will only ever increase so much as our understanding of God and his will and his wisdom increases. But but Paul makes clear here that this kind of counsel, this teaching of the faith, this admonishment, this counseling of a Christian about what he believes and thinks and says and does, is not just the responsibility of the apostle or the pastor It's the role of all believers with one another. He essentially lays out his own ministry in Colossians 1 so that those Colossians can imitate him here in Colossians 3. The word of of God preached is an essential means of grace for the church. It's the highest point of worship together corporately that we have here this morning. But it's not the sole means of grace. It's not the sole application of the word that happens in the body. 
Pastors can't be the only ones who actively apply the word to the people of God. If pastors are the only people in the church who study and speak and apply God's word, then this is not a congregation, it's a mission field. And they're missionaries. They're not shepherding regenerate souls. It's, it's not just the elders, the pastors who are called to the work of the ministry. It's all born-again believers. It's the calling of the church to share of the abundance of the word in their own hearts, applying it to the needs around them in mutual counsel with the word. As Paul David Tripp says, God calls each one of us in the body of Christ to be instruments of change in the Redeemer's hands. And that's not just the job of the pastor or the professional counselor. It's the responsibility of every member in the body. So our corporate worship together, it's not just singing. Neither is it just preaching of the word or listening to the word. It's serving together, learning together, growing together, supporting one another, encouraging one another, bearing one another's burdens, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, confessing sins to one another, confronting sins in one another, bringing out from the storehouses of your heart treasures from the Scripture for their encouragement, for their advancement, for the killing of their sin, for the preservation of their witness. And we do this in all wisdom, it says. That's not your wisdom, Christian. Thank the Lord it's not your wisdom. Praise God it's not my wisdom. Just like it wasn't Paul's strength in his own struggle with the ministry in Colossians 1. It's the wisdom of God, the the strength that he powerfully works within you. And all the riches of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says, are in Christ. When you counsel another Christian, you're not showing them your own wisdom, your own insights, your own depth of knowledge. You're just giving them Christ. You're showing them all that Christ is and has been for you so that they may know and believe anew that he is all that for them as well. It's why every believer in here, from the the most recent convert to the most weathered Christian in our congregation, is competent for this kind of counsel. It's why Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, right, author of a third of the New Testament, can write to the Romans who are brand new Christians and say, I am eager to come to you so that we may be mutually encouraged. That's probably my, I know we've been in Romans 1 a lot. That's actually my favorite part of Romans 1. It's a lot easier to read. He says, we may be mutually encouraged. What can a new believer offer to the Apostle Paul? What can a Gentile offer to the Jew of Jews? What depth of understanding of the scriptures did they have that Paul did not? Nothing. They didn't have anything of, of earthly accomplishment that Paul did not have. But every believer has Christ. And that's more than enough. That's, that's what Paul's teaching and counseling ministry was in Colossians. He begins by saying, him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. By warning and teaching. When you as a church member approach another Christian with the word of God, teaching or admonishing, your, your goal is not to give them some nugget of divine wisdom that no one has ever found before, that, that the pastor's not going to find in any of his commentaries, so you're helping his ministry, that someone has not heard John Piper preach a million times or John MacArthur say in one of his books. It's just to remind the other person that in all things, in all ways, For every situation in life, Christ is supreme. Christ is worthy. Christ is enough. Christ is wise. You're charging your brother and your sister to remember, to to look back upon Christ if their eyes have fallen to the world, to think about what is true and lovely and honorable and worthy of praise if their thoughts have strayed from God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ, to to, to return in repentance to the shepherd of their souls if they've wandered into sin. 
The weakest member of our church needs this from you, and the strongest member in our church needs this from you. And if you consider yourself the weakest, one, that is a great frame of mind. Don't ever lose that mentality. But you as the weakest believer in our body has something to offer the strongest, has something to offer every elder, has something to offer every preacher, because you have Christ. And the great evidence of a church that is ruled by the peace of Christ is that every person in the body is eager to speak Christ. Right? We have great times of fellowship. That's one of the things we love about our church. But it's not just the length of conversations that matter when it comes to the fellowship of the saints. It's the content of them. It's the subject of our, of our statements. Give your brothers and sisters Christ. And you'll always have something of value to offer them. It's, it's really the only thing of value that you have to offer to begin with, right? I have one thing of value to offer you up here, and it's Christ. Same thing for Randy and Paul and Justin. They have one thing of value. What you need to hear is not the mind of Caleb Hardage or the mind of Randy Tyler. You need the mind of Christ. That's all that we have to give as the church. And, and at the very least, as we see here by way of practical application... What these activities require and presuppose here in Colossians is your presence with the other believers, your participation in their lives physically, right? Paul's commands make no sense without it. We are called, Paul says, in one body to the peace of Christ. We're to let the word of Christ dwell in us all richly. We're to teach and admonish one another, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts, plural, to God. All these things require your active presence in the body, Christian. You can't do these things over Zoom. You can't get these things over Facebook or or YouTube. Because this is not just imparting information from one Christian to another. It's, It's demonstrating reconciliation with the other believers. It's living out the peace of Christ that rules your heart. The, the one body that Paul is writing about is not the universal church here in Colossians 3. It's the Colossian body. Right? There is no universal church without the local church. That, that's senseless. There cannot be a real universal church if there are not any local churches. It doesn't make sense. You can't just be affectionate and unified with Christians everywhere if you're not in covenant, commit with, covenant commitment with Christians somewhere. It's impossible. It, w- it would be all but unfathomable, I think, for Paul and, and the Christians of his day that there would be people who were changed and and saved by the gospel of Jesus with infinite access to the scriptures, with with days of free time each week, with a local church within minutes of their houses, with the ability to travel wherever and whenever they want, with legal freedom to gather openly in worship, with all these incredible privileges physically that are given to us in Christ, from Christ, more than any other people in the history of the world, and those supposed believers would just stay home instead of gather together with the saints, day after day. In one sense, I think it's a slap in the face of God's goodness. It's taking your spiritual and physical liberty and using it for yourself instead of the Lord. It's, it's really self-worship of the highest order, to make the Lord's day your day. It's idolatry. And as a Christian, living in isolation from the local church is living in sin. Just the same as fornication. Adultery, divorce, we don't think of it that way. We should. That's not peace. It's actually a form of conflict or division 
from the people that you are in covenant with. The marriage covenant presupposes that you are present with your spouse, right? To fulfill all the duties that you promised to fulfill, to have and to hold, to love and to cherish, to nurture and protect. To be primarily absent from the home is to abandon your spouse, to abandon your covenant commitment. And it's much the same with the local church. It's purposely living contrary to covenant commitments and even explicit biblical commands. There are some exceptions to this in God's providence. There are saints in prison, saints in hospital, saints in hospice. There are deaths and diseases. There are surgeries and storms. And and God has, as Steve Lawson says, unusual grace for exceptional circumstances. There's a peace that surpasses all understanding that God gives to those people despite their surroundings. But there's no such unusual grace for those who intentionally ignore God's ordinary means of grace. The, The default for a Christian is that you are present with God's people regularly, continually, unless you are hindered by God's providence. Anything else is presumption upon his kindness. Anything else is sin, really. Jesus never leaves his people. So if we want to be like Jesus, neither will we. And he he prays for unity among his people. We, We talk about how false teaching and sin bring division to the body. But nothing brings division to the body faster than absence from the body. That's literally dividing the body. You can't get division faster than that. That's literally division of the body, and Christ prays against that. So if you make a habit of separating from the saints, of neglecting the gathering of the saints, really neglecting the saints, Christ prays against that which you are doing. You're setting yourself up against Christ. How can you enjoy the peace of Christ in your own heart if you are resisting him? And so you lose, in in this disobedient absence from the people of God, you lose both the peace of Christ in your own soul, because you're opposing God and you've disrupted the peace of Christ in the body with your continued absence because they lack spiritually what you are commanded by Christ to give them an encouragement and an admonishment. And that's why I think the most bitter, resentful, peaceless Christians are those who neglect the body, those who neglect the saints, who separate from the regular life of God's people. It's much easier to harbor resentment against people when you don't see them regularly or worship with them or work beside them for the glory of Christ. That's why the most anxious, discouraged, despairing believers are those separated from the other saints because they're not receiving the teaching and admonishing of Christ that would set their feet upon the solid ground of God's teaching, of God's doctrine. The peace of Christ is most fully experienced in connection with the body because it is to this peace that we were called, not as individuals, but as one body, Paul says here in Colossians 3, to willingly separate from the body habitually is to forfeit much of the peace of Christ that God has for you. Do you see how harmful this is? And I think this, is, this has been something that's brought up in many sermons recently, not just at our church, but I'm, I'm seeing them all over Facebook, really, and I think it's a common theme in the people of God in the West, in our culture. And we don't keep harping on that here to be present at church or prayer meetings or small groups for the sake of sovereign grace, the organization. It's not about getting you in the building so we can count heads or grow budgets. It's about getting you into the body so your life counts for the sake of Christ's kingdom and you are transformed into his image. It's your spiritual well-being and everyone around you that is harmed when you make a habit of neglecting fellowship. And that that goes beyond Sunday mornings, right? If you're here today, I commend you for that. 
I'm so glad you're here. Please do not be wounded and retreat from fellowship at this point. But your responsibilities go much deeper. Your responsibility to Christ and his people goes further. There's, there's much fellowship and, and prayer and encouragement and admonishment and benefit that I think even some of our members miss because they neglect the community of our body. There's no law given in Scripture concerning the frequency of meeting together with the people. There's a general command in Hebrews, do not neglect the meeting of the saints, the assembly of the saints, as is the habit of some. But if you're in covenant membership here, there's also a commitment that you made to us, to the Lord, to the elders. And Christ wants you to honor that. Christ wants you to honor him in that. And the fact is, we all can struggle with these things. We all need to press on to excel in this more and more as a body. But I think we also need to take a step back in humility this morning and look at our own spiritual lives in the light of God's truth. And the fact is, Christ saved you. Christ purchased you with his blood. Christ resurrected you from the spiritually dead. He purchased you with his blood. All that you have, body, mind, and soul, Christian, is his. You don't have anything of value that did not come from Christ. You are not your own. Your life is not yours, which means your time is not yours, which means your money is not yours, which means your family is not yours, your home or your job. It all belongs to King Jesus. And it's given to you for a while to care for as a servant, steward of the kingdom. And the fact is, if if all that we have is not employed in the service and leverage for the sake of Christ and his kingdom, we're being bad stewards. We're burying our talent rather than investing it in Christ's kingdom. And we need to humble ourselves, confess our selfishness and pride, take our families to church regularly. We need to give faithfully. We need to evangelize eagerly. We need to disciple continually. We need to pray ceaselessly. We need to study God's word carefully, also that we may counsel wisely. If you're in covenant membership of this church, you made a promise, again, to us, to the to Christ before our holy triune God with whom you are also in covenant. And that covenant commitment reads that we would be present and active, submissive to the other saints and to Jesus' word at every regular meeting of the saints unless providentially hindered. I'm not out here to bash anybody, but that's the covenant commitment that many of us signed. That's a promise before the Lord. And it requires our diligence. And I promise you, God is not providentially hindering you if you are absent as much as you are absent. We we maybe need to redefine God's providence there in a sense. God's providence is not the opportunity for sin. It's It's not the opportunity for sin. And I would just ask, you probably, or just point out, if you are absent from the body for any extended period of time, you're probably not absent from your job as much as you are from the regular meeting of the saints. Why? Why would that be? Is it because we only get sick or feel bad on weekends? Is it it because, um, maybe because we value what our job gives us more than the gathering of the saints? If If you were as active in your employment as you are in the church, would you still have a job at this time next week? I don't mean to hurt anybody with that question, but just be honest with yourself. Would you still be employed if you were as active in your secular employment as you are in the gathering of the saints? And if not, why do you revere men this way and not God? Why? Christ calls us. He commands us to no longer live for ourselves but for him. It's not natural that any born-again Christian 
would need to be coerced or convinced to come to the body of Christ. Especially if we've entered into covenant before God and man under the authority of his under-shepherds that we would do so. It's sin. It needs to be put off. And we need to put on greater love and, and faithfulness for our Savior and his most treasured possession, which is his people. And I think what causes our hands to, to droop, our, our knees to weaken, our zeal for the body of Christ to fade is just a lack of gratitude for Christ and his people. That's the manner in which we sow peace among the body. Thanksgiving, gratitude. He repeats that phrase three times in three verses for emphasis. We have in verse 15, be thankful. In verse 16, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. In verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is important. The peaceful heart is a thankful heart. The, the obedient Christian is a thankful Christian. I think Paul's just reminding you here, we had no peace with God, but we do now. We, we had no peace with one another, but we do now. You hated him. I hated him. He hated us in our sin, and we hated each other. Paul reminds us of that in Titus chapter 3. In verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's what we were. But in verse 4, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. The word of Christ, this this gospel of salvation is not just information, saints. It should produce in you emotion in your hearts. There should be a response that comes from being redeemed. You should respond with gratitude, not only for the peace Christ has brought you with your God, but with your fellow heirs with Christ. This is a privilege for us, a joy, peace with God and peace with each other. It's meant to be enjoyed. Gratitude here is the opposite of grumbling and division. One cannot be thankful and divisive at the same time. I would say one cannot be thankful and habitually absent at the same time. Ingratitude is the enemy of peace. It brings envy, strife, every vile practice which would destroy the body. But thanksgiving to God is a wellspring of peace in the church. Did someone wrong you in the body? A thankful person knows that they've wronged others. And more importantly, they've wronged God so often and so terribly. And yet God spared you the eternal hell you deserved and did not spare his own son and adopted you into his own family by his grace. He has forgiven you completely. He's forgiven them the same. Do you have a right to withhold what Jesus does not? Did you, do you feel this morning maybe that your contributions at church are taken for granted? Your resources are being used up in service to the other saints without any thanks to you. Who gives freely to all? 
out of his abundance? Who gives freely to all of his children and who gave you those things? Why would Jesus give them to you if he did not want you to benefit his own body with them? That's why you have them. Are there those in the body who grate on you, who are hard to love and hard to be at peace with, hard to be present with? Do you think Christ loves you with an everlasting love because you're lovely or because he is loving? Has he not borne with your weaknesses, your idiosyncrasies, your foolishness a thousand times without offering any harsh word? Does he not promise to never leave you or forsake you? Grateful hearts preclude grumbling and complaining. Grateful hearts hate gossip. They, they hate envy. Dwelling on the peace of Christ guards your hearts and minds, as Paul says from Philippians 4, from the introduction of anything that would bring discord or disunity into the perfect harmony of Christ's body. This is not just a command to express thankfulness. We could maybe get away with this if we just sang thankful songs to the Lord. But it's a command to be thankful at heart. Even if you never verbally express your grumbling or complaining of heart about someone else in the body, you are still compromising the peace of the church. This is something that we need to search out in our hearts, confess, submit to Christ's authority, and be rid of, not only for our own sakes, but for the sake of every member of the body, of Christ's body. Because that's ultimately the motive. It's, not for the, it's for the sake of Christ. It's for his body. It's for the sake of Christ that you forgive. It's for the sake of Christ that you gather. It's for the sake of Christ that you give. It's for the sake of Christ that you give of yourself in teaching and admonishing and discipleship. If you do any of those things reluctantly, partially, sparingly, you need to look again at how good Jesus is, how good he's been to you. The peace of Christ that he has won in our hearts is so that he may be preeminent in all things. The peace of his body, it's not a matter of preference or comfort or practicality, but of preeminence. Christ's glory is at stake in the way that we gather together, in the way that we love one another. The peace of Christ should not be simply thought of in terms of what it's not. Right? It's not just the absence of conflict. It's not just the absence of division. It's the presence of the loving harmony that Christ has with the Father. It's faithful commitment and service to one another, active involvement for the sake of the gospel. It's a shining example of the goodness of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus and the glories of Jesus so that the world that has no peace would see that there is a God in Israel, that there is a God in the church that bears his name, and that this church is at peace with God and man through Jesus Christ. And if they will repent, they too can be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, or they will have no peace. I'd say this morning, if the peace of Christ is truly ruling your heart, if it's the umpire, if it makes the decisions, if it guides your thoughts, it will always point you toward Christ's people. It will take you there and it will keep you there. It will compel you to reconcile and participate and contribute to the growth and unity of the body. It will, as John Calvin says, subdue all lesser or worldly passions in your flesh. It will surpass all. And in the body, you will feel there most fully the peace of Christ in your own heart. Right? This is how Christians grow. The body is where the peace of Christ is meant to be experienced most of all. In healthy, scripture-saturated, servant-hearted relationships. As Paul says in Colossians 2, the whole body grows together through its joints and ligaments. The, the connections and intersections of God's people. This is how we grow. 
There is always a lack of the peace of Christ and a lack of growth in Christ when these, ligament, when these ligaments or connections are severed, either through sinful divisions in the body or disobedient absences from the body. But when you are in Christ and you devote yourself to the glory of Christ and the good of his people, you're doing what he's created you to do, what he's redeemed you to do, and you will feel the pleasure of God that is in Christ for his people. It's such a joy and a sweet blessing My intention is not to threaten you into participation in the body, but to draw you in by showing you the privilege that is here. It's a joy and a sweet blessing from our Lord that he has designed for us in his body, that we would receive so much of Christ's comfort and his instruction and his correction and his nourishment from his body. And he continues to extend his loving care from us from the right hand of the Father through not only his formal ministers in the church, but every fellow minister in Christ that teaches and admonishes us for his sake. And I think as we will celebrate at the end of this service, um, our our king is calling even more fellow ministers to this one body to love you and to care for you as as your souls, uh, as you love and care for them and their souls. These, These beloved saints that will celebrate gathering into our fellowship today are gifts of Christ's grace to you today. It's as if he has sent a package, a gift of his love. And it's showing up on our doorstep today, proclaiming how much Christ loves us. And they are meant to be receivers of his grace as you walk out your own sanctification. They're sent here to help you be more like Jesus. Every person in the body is put here to help you be more like Jesus. To give you an opportunity to walk more like Jesus in the way that you faithfully love them and teach them and thank God with and for them. So as we we come to the end of the service today, turn in gratitude again. Remember, Christ has saved you. Christ has redeemed you. He has called you from death to life, and he has called you in the one body. He is not only with you, but he's given all of his people to be present with you. Love these people to the end, as Christ does for us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Father, I thank you for all that you've given us. Thank you for the blessing of your word. Lord, I pray that by your spirit it would dwell in us richly. Lord, I thank you for um, the people of Christ that are given to help us, to teach us and admonish us. Lord, I pray that if there is any um, sinful self-occupation in our body today, as I think there is harboring in all of our hearts, Lord, we would confess it, be rid of it, that we would cling to you, turn and fix our eyes again on you. Thank God, for Christ and and for his people. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.